This podcast was pre-recorded before the pandemic. Please check out the message from Kagi for some of my thoughts on the current situation, which should pop up just before this episode. Otherwise, I really hope you enjoy listening. Hello everyone and welcome to Saturn Returns with me, Kagi Dunlop. This is a new podcast that aims to bring clarity during transitional times where there can be confusion and doubt. My experience of the last two years has been that it is when I am most fully myself and most open about my vulnerabilities that I have had the greatest connection with other people. That has been such a revelation to me because I realised that people like me for who I am. And when people don't like me, that's so much easier to deal with when I've just been who I am. At the top of the episode, you would have had a clip from guest Elizabeth Day. A lot of you will be familiar with Elizabeth from her podcast, How to Fail. She is a journalist, author and broadcaster. And she is my first guest on this podcast, which is incredibly exciting. And actually, as I'm recording this, she hasn't arrived yet. So I'm just waiting for her in my flat. But before she arrives, I want to explain to you a little bit more about this project of mine and why I'm doing it. So I'm going to make a cup of tea. So come with me, come along into my kitchen, and I'll tell you a little bit about it. So I guess most of you would be familiar with me from appearing on reality show Made in Chelsea, which is something I still find very odd to talk about because it it was quite a small chapter in my life, yet it has remained the thing that I'm most known for. And... I guess in so many ways, that version of me represented the person that I sort of aspired to be when I was, when I was, I guess, a teenager. And then throughout my 20s, a little bit the beginning, but it was a very, it was like a very watered down version. I don't really think I was authentically myself. So I guess this is going to be quite interesting for those of you who haven't heard that much about me over the last couple of years, because I have been a lot more quiet but this is going to be me sharing who I am today and what I'm really about and and a more authentic and truthful version of me. So when I hit 27 I'd say there was like a massive massive shift in my life and I'd moved to LA and I suddenly found that the person that I had spent my entire 20s becoming or trying to be was uh, was not really authentic to who I truly was. And I discovered through being there that certain people came into my life that introduced me to, to I guess, astrology and to spirituality. And I discovered that something actually happens in your late 20s to your early 30s, which is called your Saturn return. And it's something it's this experience that we go through where we're sort of being forced into adulthood and it can be quite a rude awakening, but no one really knows about it. So even though this is rooted in astrology, its themes are applicable to anyone who is going through a transition and everything that goes with that. So we're going to be covering all the themes that are really key during this time and can be quite difficult to talk about. And I'm going to be completely open and honest about them. And I'm bringing on guests that I found during this time that really, really, really helped me. So some of the things we're going to be covering are relationships, which will be obviously a huge subject and in-depth. 
love, family, career, money, finances, identity, self-worth, and so much more. So I really hope you're going to take something away from this and share it with your friends and anyone you think might benefit from this podcast. In a few minutes, my guest Elizabeth Day will be here. But first, I just wanted to explain a bit more about the astrological concept behind this podcast. I'm very aware that some of you might never have heard of the term Saturn Returns before, and I wouldn't consider myself an expert by any means, so I've invited my friend and astrologer, Flo Devereux, to be our astrological guide for this series. Each episode, she's going to be dropping in to explain a little bit more about what's going on on a planetary scale during this transitional time. Today, she's going to take us through the basics of what Saturn Return actually is and how it affects you in your life. So you've got your birth chart, which, you know, it's, it's, it's a frozen snapshot of the position of the planets when you were born. That's just a snapshot of time. And what really happens is that Saturn carries on moving and all the other planets carry on moving on their different cycles, on their different flight, flight paths. And um, Saturn is the last planet that we can see with the naked eye. So until telescopes were invented we thought that Saturn was the final planet in our system. Mm. So Saturn was always this kind of the holder of our system because it was the slowest, because it's the furthest away from the Earth. It takes the longest to move around and do one complete cycle. So it takes 29.4 years, it does depend on the chart, but roughly 29 years to go from the position of where it was when you were born and travel all the way around the zodiacal belt back there. and come back to that same position. So with the return, what happens is it comes back around and you get this really big Saturnian moment where it is Saturn's kind of explored all the different points of the chart and said, and it's got back to the position of its way where it was when you were born. And it's this moment of being like, okay, this is what I'm going to commit to as an adult. It's a moment of reflecting, like, what did I grow in a, in a way that has brought flourishing? And what did I not attend to in, with these kind of Saturnian principles of, like, patience and rigour and attention and discipline that has failed? What I felt was that my, my 20s were very much about fitting in and moulding myself to different people and versions of myself that... I felt gave me a, a validation mm. and that I probably had created from like even my teenage years. Mm. And then suddenly those coping mechanisms and the, th those behaviours that I had become accustomed to, suddenly I was in conflict with myself about operating in that way. Mm. And it was like the authenticity in me and mm. the, the deep knowing of how I should be living my life mm -hmm. was coming up and it was getting more and more painful actually mm. the more I was denying that and fighting mm. with it mm. and then it caused me to ha there's a sort of I think a, a death of self mm. in a way yeah. that happens because you do have to shed certain parts of yourself and make space for what is going to come in yeah there's, there's a tarot card which is the grim reaper which has someone cutting crops away and like the dead crops but then all these flowers growing out of it so yeah you need to cut away what is holding you back and what hasn't grown well. And it is a really sad process. It is. And also I think in you know society and everything that we can be so attached to the narrative that we play in, in something of, of relationships, of job. And, and this is why I'm interested about this sort of stuff and how you can 
implement it into your life because if you are in a job that you don't like but you've been there for mm. ages and it's the sort of a, mm. a bit more of a certainty in it and therefore mm. you stay or a relationship that's toxic mm. but you've been in it for a long time and you you have a knowing that it's not right but you just yeah. don't have the courage to leave I feel like this is the time yeah when you have to make those tough decisions totally. because I mean, I don't think it's as black and white as like, if you don't, then you're stuck in it for another 30 years. But it is, it does bring an opportunity with it, doesn't it? That you like have to have the courage to let go of that, which is no longer serving you. Totally. And step up to like the yep. version of yourself you want to be. Yep, 100%. We'll be hearing from Flo again in future episodes and you can find out more about her on Instagram at astrologyforthecurious or from her website, astrologyforthecurious.com. Hello! Hi, so nice to meet you finally. So nice to meet you. Come on in. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Pleasure, this is so lovely and light. Elizabeth, welcome. It's a delight to be here. Yeah, because your podcast has just done so incredibly well, so... It's quite an honour to have you here. Thank you. Well, I have to say the podcast doing so well has been one of the greatest gifts of my life in the sense that it was quite unexpected for me because I did this thing that I felt very strongly about. So it was a really personal thing. And then to put it out there and to see it have the resonance that it had with lots of people who subsequently messaged me was really beautiful. And it made me realise actually that it was the time of my life when I decided to be honest about my everything. own vulnerability, everything basically, yeah. And that was when I I got the most connection with others. So it was a really amazing thing. I think it's always that way when the magic happens, when you have to step into that fear and that unknown space. Did you have any idea that it was going to take off the way it has? I didn't expect it to take off in the way that it did. I was really surprised and I continue to be extremely grateful for how many people have listened to it and I'm also deeply aware of the irony that a podcast about failure and the subsequent book I wrote about failure have become the most successful things I've ever done professionally. But I think it's all about stepping into your vulnerability and that's exactly what you did. Was there a point where suddenly you're like I have to do this or was it just over time that suddenly this thing was bubbling in you and you were like okay now's the time? Yes, there was something that suddenly happened, which I'll tell you about. But I do also think it had subconsciously been bubbling away in me for ages, that idea of vulnerability and stepping into your authentic self. Because I, like many other people, had spent most of my 20s and definitely my early 30s being a people pleaser. Yeah. And outsourcing my sense of self to the opinions of others, <laughs> most notably in romantic relationships, which is actually not a great way, turns out, to have a romantic relationship. Yeah, but I think so many people are going to connect. I mean, I do. And this obviously this podcast is about stepping into your worth. And I think things happen in your life that make you have to confront that. Yeah. Situations will continuously happen mm. that force you to face up to the truth of like what you're not wanting to deal with, which for you obviously was about authenticity, vulnerability and, and a sense of self. Totally. I mean, you've nailed it. It was that thing of feeling good enough with my flaws and therefore being able to be open about them and I think you're completely right that the universe keeps sending you the lesson until you learn it mm. and it's I, brutal it is brutal <laughs> and I often say people will sometimes ask me do you regret something and I don't have any regrets sometimes I wish I'd learned the lesson more quickly mm. <laughs> and 
to answer your initial question, there was something specific that happened that led to my doing the podcast. And it was related to that groundswell where I ended up getting married and it turned out to be to the wrong person. And so then I got divorced. And in the aftermath of that divorce, I really thought, I've hit rock bottom now. (laughs) Um, I'm really reassessing who I am, my people-pleasing tendencies, and I'm really looking at myself as things actually are. And the next relationship I get into will be as a result of different choices. And I got into a relationship that was very different and I had made different choices and it was with a very different person. And then in October 2017, that relationship ended out of the blue for me. It was a really shattering blow. And that was at the point, actually, that I think I was at my lowest because all of the emotional scaffolding that I'd built up subsequent to the divorce came tumbling down. down. Yeah. And, And I was faced with the reality that as much as I thought I had been making different decisions, as much as I thought I was being honest about myself, I'd actually been weaving another kind of narrative. Narrative. And I'd been telling myself something about the person I was with that didn't stand up to scrutiny. And I just realised I'd been telling myself a different story. and And that was then my most vulnerable point. And that was when I started having really honest conversations with friends. I started looking back at the decade of my 30s thinking actually, I've withstood a lot of the stuff I didn't think I was strong enough to withstand. What has that taught me? And that was the genesis of the podcast. So now I'm very grateful that he broke up with me. (laughs) But it's that thing of um, relinquishing control and actually being, because you are weaving without realising, I think we're all guilty of it, another narrative all the time. We meet someone and we've attached so many expectations within the first meeting. And actually, what I found from reading your book was this thing of, it's, our marriage to expectation rather than the actual person. Yes. So when they let us down, even though they may have told us exactly. who they are and what they want and what they can give, we've been like, yeah, I'm just going to shoehorn you into what I actually want you to be and you you will become it, hopefully. So it's that hope and expectation that, and that's the real disappointment. And when you're confronted with that, when the person has left, it's like, Yes, you're angry at them and the betrayal or whatever that might be, but you're then having to face yourself and what you've put on yourself, really. And that's really tough. I completely agree with everything you just said. (laughs) And there's a phrase that I use in the book, which is that I was the willing collaborator in the execution of my own heartbreak. Yeah, it's a tough one because I think we so often are ready to project onto other people because looking at ourselves is so much tougher Yeah, exactly. He had been giving me the available information all along and I wasn't noticing those signs. And part of it was, I think, a bit deliberate. I didn't want to notice them because I was really... Well, you were were going along your path of the narrative that you had weaved and you were like, would you you say that your body knew? Uh, Such a good question. And you posted something on Instagram the other day that really affected me. I was thinking about it earlier about how your body sometimes gives you signals, but we have been socially conditioned kind of to ignore that, I feel. It's taken me, me a long time to be back in tune with my body. And I'm still not entirely sure that I am, but yes. So during that whole time, I got pneumonia for the first time ever. And, and um, I thought I was just sort of tired. <laughs> and I remember going for a run, like going for a jog, when I actually was just like not feeling well, but I didn't have sufficient symptoms in my head not to exercise. That was the first time I got pneumonia. And then I went through a period of like getting it every year. Really? And it was horrible, all kind of really bad chest infections. 
And just before that relationship breakup, I had another bout of pneumonia. And yeah, I think that was like... your body talking to you. Yeah. And I haven't had pneumonia since the end of that relationship. And since I got a pneumonia vaccination. But also I do genuinely believe that my life shifted and I felt less grief because I think there's a school of thought that when you're lungs are ill it's when you're holding on to grief mm. and I just want to be clear as well because I had a similar experience but that it's, it's not to say that this is reactionary to the other person no as in it's like <laughs> it wasn't an allergic reaction <laughs> <laughs> because I no. had something and it's what my post was about that happened to me last year where I was physically responding to something but I was completely unaware in in, in the sense that my mind had no idea and our minds run so much of the show, we don't give enough credit to our body and its instincts. And what happened with me was I was getting periods of depression. And it's very personal for me to talk about this because it's also quite raw, but yeah. I described it to my partner at the time. Of I feel like my heart's being broken and I don't know why. And now looking back, it was being broken on some physical level I knew and it's sort of put me on this path of trying to really become one with my mm. body and actually and trust it because I think as women we're taught and conditioned not to so it's interesting because in your book you talk a lot about instincts and gut and how it took you a while to suddenly get to that point yeah I think I have always had very strong gut and instinctive feelings but I haven't historically listened to them because I've fallen into the trap of believing that things need to be logical. And actually, I think logic is a massive conspiracy theory mm. in that obviously it exists. And, you know, if you stick your hand in the fire, then you'll burn it. But not everything in this universe is guided by logic. It can't be, not by human logic anyway. I, we are imperfect beings. We can't possibly hope to have the sophisticated enough level of intelligence to understand everything. And now I have to remind myself when I have a strong instinctive feeling that it is okay to listen to it and to act on it without there being a logical reason behind it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I like to say, if I'm in um, a sad space or um, I want to express to my partner something that I feel, um, I will sometimes say, you know, my feeling is a fact. So mm. I can put together a logical case and defend my opinion on something, but ultimately how I feel is this, and that is a factual expression yeah, of, of what really I'm That's really powerful. Yeah. Because do you think also that women, we've sort of been conditioned to push that down because also something you talk about a lot is, anger in women and things mm. like that and how that's not it's not really been acceptable and I think we've always tried to fit in so we haven't perhaps honoured our female intuition definitely there's a whole chapter in the book about how to fail anger which I never intended to write because really? I didn't think I was angry and then I suddenly started writing this thing and I was filled with a kind of righteous and focused fury that made that chapter actually the easiest one to write in a, in a way because there was so much I wanted to say. And I realised that for a lot of my life I had felt sad, but I'd been using sadness to mask my anger because anger felt very confronting to me and very uncomfortable and bad. So yes, I think that women historically 
when they've been angry, they've either been dismissed as shrewish and shrill and slightly stupid, um, hysterical, so out of their minds, or dangerous. So obviously that it takes a conscious effort, I think, for certain women to be in touch with what they've been culturally conditioned to ignore for so long. Well, women get sort of labelled psycho when they demonstrate 100%. those sort of emotions. And also because of hormones and cycles, that that's still something that's a lot of shame is wrapped around. Whereas actually I'm trying to practice honouring that a lot more. I actually just got a calendar that ha you're supposed to like mark your yeah. cycles so you can actually start working with it because... If you're not paying attention to it and you're not you're told that it's something that's shameful, of course it's going to feel like irrational all over the place. But if you actually start working with it, I think it's incredibly insightful and there's so much totally. to take from it. And similarly, I only recently started doing that. Why why have I only recently thought, isn't it a good idea to like put into a diary or a, yeah. an iCal when, yeah, when I'm bleeding heavily four days a month when I know that in the days before that I will feel so sad I'll forget that I'm getting my period and I'll think I'm depressed <laughs> <laughs> Do the same thing. and then every time it comes you're like huh but uh, before you're like it can't be why yes. that can't be why <laughs> it's madness and I have a very good friend of mine who is an acupuncturist and that's how I met him. Is this the person that you went to see for your fertility? Yes, I started seeing him when I was trying and failing to conceive in my early to mid thirties. But one of the things that he says is, you know, you are bleeding heavily during your period. So cut yourself some slack, like go and lie under a duvet rather than thinking you've got to do a spin class. We're conditioned to sort of completely deny it, not even acknowledge that it's happening. Yeah. And heaven forbid, show any emotion that might be connected to it. You're right. And so many female experiences are marginalised like that. And it makes me increasingly angry. Because I want to talk to you about your own fertility journey, because obviously you've been so outspoken about it, which is amazing. And it's very touching to read about it with so much openness and vulnerability. Thank you. A lot of my closest girlfriends who are not necessarily trying for children but suddenly got to an age where they realize okay the biological clock is still ticking and what they're experiencing is they might be like past 35 and they're suddenly going in and checking on their fertility which they never have done before mm. but the difficult thing about it which I found really upsetting to hear is how much shame there is around it because we're sold the story as we're growing up about the knight in shining armour, you know, we're going to be saved, we're going to have this fairy tale wedding. And, you know, when we're young and at school about, you look at a penis and you're pregnant, basically. Yeah. All my lessons were about like putting condoms on and not getting pregnant. Yeah. You, talk, you, you made this amazing descriptive thing of going through a field of like touching and then just, oh, I'm pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Whereas the reality is somewhat very different and yeah. also a very difficult journey. But when you're sold that story and then your reality is so different from that, it can feel shameful and isolating. Totally. And I do think that failure is what you feel when something doesn't go according to plan. Mm -hmm. So it's that idea that in your mind, somehow you have a plan of how things will turn out. So I always thought I would have children. And therefore, when I didn't, that felt like a failure. But in many ways, it was a self-imposed failure. And actually, what's come out of that failure, I'm extremely sad about it. But if it does enable me to speak out for those women who don't feel able to, and if it does enable me to have a tiny part to play in changing the language and the culture around it, then I'm actually incredibly grateful for the plan not turning out the way I mm. thought it was going to but I also think by the way that it's 
fine to feel ambivalent about children, which I think I did for a really long time. I wasn't sure one way or the other. Because if I'm completely honest at the moment, I don't know whether it's something that's in... I don't have yeah. this maternal thing when I see a baby and my ovaries start like... You know, it's I don't not, either. I always had it with like cats. <laughs> <laughs> but not I do love babies. cats. Yeah. <laughs> but all my friends speak very differently about it and I've always sort of felt a bit of an anomaly in that sense and and it does on some level make you feel like oh am I not less a woman but am I missing something mm. whereas actually from spending a lot of time on my own and like traveling bits on my own I realize how much that's to do with society telling you to do something a certain way at a certain time yeah. and if you're constantly in that environment you don't give yourself space to think well perhaps I could do things differently. Exactly. And also we are lucky that we live in a time where there are loads of options. So say you get to 45 and you think, oh, I really wish I'd had a child. There are options available. You could adopt, you could potentially get an egg donor. There are there are things out there now that it's it's an exciting time in that respect. But I also think it's a time that offers a lot of false promises because none of it is utterly certain it's guaranteed but that's okay too because that's life is a, is a kind of journey of uncertainty and that's where a lot of the good stuff lies is sort of working out how you feel i understand from parents that you feel very differently about your own baby and so you also <laughs> spoke about freezing your eggs because that mm. was something that was part of your journey as well as the ivf yes and a lot of my friends now are going through that experience but what are your thoughts on that because obviously it's very expensive and it's not got any guarantee in fact its percentage is like for what 15 percent oh much less much less well for a woman my age and my advanced age of <laughs> 852 um, <laughs> i have really mixed feelings about egg freezing it's a big risk and you're right when you say it's very expensive and so for me it was more about the fact that i wanted to have done it I didn't want to have this big question mark over whether I should have done it when I got to my 40s. And also because at the time I was doing it, I was in a relationship and that felt kind of sad that the relationship wasn't in a position where I could do this naturally. <laughs> because it, you weren't ready in the relationship to uh, have a child. Yes, together. basically. I was with a younger man and he wasn't ready. You know, this is it's a very... People will often say this, like there's Mr. Right and there's like Mr. Right now. And there's and part of being Mr. or Mrs. or Miss Right is actually timing. As unromantic as that sounds, it's a really big factor. And actually, I now believe I'm with a wonderful man now who he will laugh if he listens to this because he always says he's a big believer in pacing. <laughs> and when we first got together... I still believed that the true expression of romance was, we must be together right now and run away to the desert. And <laughs> Me too. Yes. Just as extreme as you could possibly exactly. get and diving in head first. Because otherwise they're not that into you, surely. Yeah. And I now realise that I could not have been more wrong. That actually when someone says that they love you like that, that's more about them and their narcissism than it is about you. Mm. And why would you want to be with someone who's going to throw away their livelihood and go to the desert with you? It's madness. It's a form of madness. I get that because I'm that person <laughs> that will, well, I used to be, would abandon myself 
as soon as someone came along that gave me that feeling. And I would like honestly say, I love you so quickly. Yeah. And even though I meant it at the time, I couldn't possibly know what that meant because I didn't really know that person. Although I think there's something very beautiful about that because you believe in love and you carry on believing in love no matter how many knocks you take. True, but I think, and it's something you talked about in your book, that how we look for a partner that's going to like rescue us. Mm, yeah. And I think with me, it stemmed from a lack of feeling complete within myself. Whereas now I'm really practicing that my romantic relationship is obviously a huge part of my life, but it's not the be all and end all. Yeah. And I don't need to abandon myself when I meet someone that I like. It's about pace. Yes. And I never, ever thought that I would approach a relationship. I'm exactly the same. Slowly. But now I realise how much wisdom there is in that. How much wisdom and how much beauty. I I now realise that that is the most romantic thing of all. Mm. That actually, for me, I thought I wanted fireworks. And don't get me wrong, when I first met Justin, who is my partner, I hate the word partner, but also boyfriend sounds trivialising because I'm 41. (laughs) So anyway, so partner, when I met him... There were fireworks in the sense that I was like, he's arrestingly handsome and I really am enjoying his company an awful lot. But it wasn't, let's abandon everything and go to the desert. It was, we were both considered about it because we had both been through divorces. Mm -hmm. We were both a bit older. We were both so much clearer about what we wanted and who we were. And honouring your needs. Exactly. And he, uh, he just taught me the beauty of pacing as much as that phrase frustrates me did you try and dive in yes <laughs> yes Kagi. so and you're talking about like, it oh i was very disciplined with it no 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 i tried and he made me resist it was a real struggle and i have to give almost all of the credit to justin actually because he made me work out what i wanted rather than being overwhelmed by what the other person desired. Mm -hmm. And it just makes for a a much better relationship. My approach to relationships and everything had always been to mould myself to the person that I met. And then after a long, however long together, I suddenly would be like, I'm not actually being myself, but I'd never taken the time to honour what my needs were, who I was as a person and what I actually wanted from a partnership. Whereas now through this transition, I'm suddenly like, okay, I actually have enough, just enough self-worth to know when something's actually just not right for me. But then on the flip side, it means that you're not going to be for everybody. And as a people pleaser, that's a bit of a strange one to digest because I've always wanted everybody to like me and everybody to love me if if I feel like I want them to. I had struggled with exactly what you've identified. That sense that you can try your best and be yourself and still someone won't want to go on a second date with you. (laughs) And that's okay. And it's okay, but it feels crushing. But my experience of the last two years has been that it is when I am most fully myself and most open about my vulnerabilities that I have had the greatest connection with other people. And that has been such a revelation to me because I realised that people like me for who I am. And when people don't like me, that's so much easier to deal with when I've just been who I am. Rather than being someone else for someone else and then feeling abandoned at the end of that journey. Exactly. Because I always look at it like we're all on our own unique paths, but I often would meet someone 
and go off on theirs. And then when that didn't work out, you feel this sort of resentment and betrayal. Whereas if you just stay on yours, of course it stings when a relationship doesn't pan out the way you hoped it would, but it doesn't have the same feeling of like, I don't know who I am anymore. Exactly. And you also don't feel like, oh, I'm really cheapened myself for that person. Like, I really betrayed who I actually am for that person. You, you won't have that, which is a whole other layer of horrible heartbreak that you don't have to deal with when you're being as fully yourself as you can be. And talking about the sort of failing, I guess, because the 20s for me were a decade of like lots of different failures. And we just touched on it within the dating sphere, but just to apply to life, failing and getting things wrong or being in the wrong relationship or whatever, it's just a way of your internal compass navigating you towards what is right for you. And I think that's how we need to approach it because for so long I was in a state of like paralysis analysis of like, I don't want to feel pain. I don't want to fail. And therefore I'm not going to move. And that is like remaining stagnant and not moving is is the worst thing of all. And I think we just, what you've managed to create is this way of people being a bit more fluid about it and moving through these transitional times with a bit more ease because it doesn't mean you're hopeless as a person if you get things wrong. Exactly. Just because you fail does not make you a failure. Mm. And I think the whole notion of Saturn's return is absolutely one of transition. And actually, if you're not transitioning, you're not growing. And you can choose to regard failure as a lesson of some description. And the lesson might not immediately be obvious and it might take you a while to process whatever sadness or pain you feel post that failure. But my personal belief is that the lesson always reveals itself. 100%. And and that is a choice. Like I realise it doesn't work for everyone and that a, a lot of people might think, well, how dare you tell me how to fail? I just want to wallow in like how miserable I am with the difficulties going on in my life. And I understand that pain, I do. And if that's how you want to live your life, that's completely fine. It's just that for me, this is the way that I found that works better. And we are obviously two immensely privileged white women. So I'm aware that when we're talking about this, we can't possibly cover the range and the gamut of human experience. We don't know what it's like to be a marginalised person, a person of colour, someone who's homeless, someone who's living with a chronic illness. There are so many different gradations of Mm -hmm. suffering and pain and failure. And some of them will feel completely unfair and unjust and uncopable with. There are some things that, as humans, we won't be able to explain And it will feel like we can't possibly learn from them because they're just so tragic. So I I acknowledge that I speak from a position of privilege is really what I wanted to say there. Um, but, But with the failures that I can choose to learn from, I choose to do that. Mm -hmm. Would you say there was a point during your late 20s to early 30s that did you notice a massive shift in your life? Or do you think that it's sort of that you were denying it? I think I was denying it. And yet there was a massive shift happening underneath the surface. So I realised that when I was 27 was when I first went into therapy. And I suppose it would be mild depression. And it felt as if there was no reason for it. I had a job that I'd always wanted. I was working on a Sunday newspaper, but it wasn't quite the job that I wanted. I wasn't getting enough of an opportunity to write. I hadn't started writing my books then, which is actually one of the greatest joys of my life. I was in a relationship that it turned out wasn't going anywhere. 
Um, but I was still in it because I loved his family so much. <laughs> and I liked him tremendously. I feel bad saying that. But it wasn't going to have a future. So it felt like a real period of transition. And therapy was immensely helpful because it made me realise that. And I did get a different job. And when I was 29, I started writing my first novel. And that was extremely helpful to me in terms of working out where my fulfillment lay and then I met the man who would later become my husband so they were very busy years but they felt extremely uncertain and quite knotty and I wasn't really sure where I was headed and that in shorthand is I think some of the cause of the then implosion that I had when I was 35 34 35 which was when I was trying to get pregnant and failing. And then subsequently, my marriage broke down. I needed something in a way outside of myself to happen to make me realise how unhappy I was. And it did feel like hitting a wall. And I was suddenly like, oh, I can't go on doing this. And it was slow motion. I think, again, there's this sense that when you're in crisis, it happens incredibly suddenly and it's very dramatic and it's very obvious. And it wasn't for me. I felt very numb for a really long time. And it was my best friend, Emma, who said to me, I feel like I'm knocking on a perspex screen and trying to get your attention, but I can't see you anymore. Mm -hmm. And that was the moment that I knew something had to change. I think what you said is so hard when something isn't a dramatic sudden change because it's hard for you to to see a way out of it because you're suddenly like, how did I get to this yeah. point and where do I go from here? Definitely. And also for me, there was an enormous amount of shame wrapped up in saying that my marriage wasn't working. I felt so foolish and so guilty and as if I were letting everyone down. So I really struggled with that. That took a long time. Well, this is something that I heard on... Oh, yeah, it was Brene Brown who talks oh. about talks <laughs> about who is your everybody. Something that I'm trying to practice at the moment is making that a smaller number and having people that you really value and respect. And when you make any decision, it's about, you know, what do these people think? You don't have to know them. It's just like having a smaller select group because you actually realise that when you're saying, oh, I was scared of letting everybody down, it's this idea that we're kind of going up a mountain we don't want to on our own with everybody behind us. And you look back and it's like, it's just you behind you shouting at you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's not I actually do. Like everybody's too busy going up their own mountain most of the time, but it has this feeling and this weight around it. And you end up going down a tunnel that you don't want to. I hadn't heard that before and it makes such sense to me. And the other thing that I do is that, again, I try and tune into my gut feeling. And that honestly is one of my guiding principles. Pay attention to how your body feels when someone walks into the room and you meet them for the first time, because often your body is telling you not to trust this person or that it's making you feel a certain way, it's bringing up stuff for yourself. And actually that's, it's helpful to kind of monitor and analyze that not actually just about the other person it's more about what it brings up for you like why is this person bringing up this emotional baggage that makes me feel this way if you start by observing that is the root of true enlightenment i mean that is the foundation of buddhist philosophy and meditation is that you are not your thoughts that you exist separately from your anxious brain and so you if you can try and observe first before attaching any feeling, any negative or positive emotion to it, that's very helpful. I mean, and that is very hard. Very hard. 
So what would your advice be to your younger self going through the transition of Saturn return? My advice would be to have faith in the process and also to spend more time really working out what it is I actually want and that doing that is not, as I feared, selfish or self-indulgent. It's actually the opposite because it enables you to be a fuller, richer, more authentic person to everyone else and therefore you won't get into the wrong relationships. You won't trap yourself in toxic friendships or toxic employment patterns because you will have spent time actually listening to what it is you need and who you are as a person so oh and boundaries oh my god (laughs) get better at boundaries um because again I think I thought that was often selfish and now I'm realizing that but we're never taught to exercise them. we're never taught to exercise them and I listened to Brené Brown just to mention her the second time on this podcast being interviewed by Russell Brand and she had spent years researching the habits of highly compassionate people I mean these are people like monks who live in the Himalayas, highly compassionate. That was their entire life. And she discovered that the one thing that connected all of these disparate groups of people was a very strong sense of boundaries because it enabled them to conserve their energy for the things that really counted because they weren't frittering it away with other stuff and wanting everyone to like them. And that for me was a real revelation. I was like, oh, I can be compassionate and have very strong boundaries. And actually the two go hand in hand, really. And it stems from having your sense of self developed enough that you know what you want and who you are and you could be like I love you I see you but this doesn't work with me exactly and you can grow you can grow and a friend or a lover can be in your life for a certain period of time and you can teach each other the lesson that you both needed to learn and then you can move on and that is not a failure that relationship was not a failure it has taught you what you needed to know 100% Well, thank you so much. I think that was a perfect thing to wrap up on. And this has been such a great conversation. I'm so happy that you're here today. I've loved it so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Elizabeth. So Elizabeth has just left my flat. And I think from the second she arrived, I definitely felt this familiarity with her, like I'd known her my whole life which some people I don't know sometimes you just have that connection with someone but she's definitely got a very warm open personality and there is also this vulnerability that comes across with her but but the strength with it too and I think that that came across in our conversation that it's a really beautiful combination I think that's why so many people connect to her I think the way that she speaks so openly about her struggles allows other women to be more open about theirs. And I think that's a really powerful thing to be doing today. I think a lot of the stuff she talked about that is, you know, we experienced during this transition, it felt like she got a calling to do it and she started practicing some of it, but then there was also this resistance in her and and that manifested itself in her being this marriage and denying these aspects of herself for a while which I found really fascinating. And I think how hard it must have been for her to make those decisions at that point. Um, and it seems that she's got to a, a stage now where she's really embodying self-worth and knows who she is and has made it into this fantastic career. So we're all very thankful that it took her along the journey that it did. But it was interesting to hear how 
you know, if she was looking back, she would be more considered and take that time. So I think that's something that we can all reflect on is it's not a selfish act to be listening to yourself and taking things slowly and really listening to what your needs are and exercising your boundaries. It actually makes you a better person in friendships and relationships. So I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode. And if you want to know more about Elizabeth, you can find her on Eliza B. Day on Instagram and listen to her podcast, How to Fail, or read her book, How to Fail. And you can find me on Instagram at Kaggy's World. Saturn Returns is a Feast Collective production. The producer is Hannah Varrell and executive producer is Kate Taylor. I really hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. My aim with it is to really help unify us during a time that can feel quite isolating and lonely. So if you did enjoy it, I'd love it if you could tell someone about it who you think it might help. So until next time, thank you so much for listening. And remember, you are not alone. Goodbye.